Welcome to Kopi Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. This is Tamar Beg, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 87th episode. Today, it's a solo commentary comprising of observations from my recent trip to the United States. Economists sometimes talk about concepts like fiscal dominance and monetary dominance, under which certain macroeconomic characteristics tend to dominate policymaking. Sometimes, there is also talk about financial dominance, in which policy is constrained by considerations for financial stability. But after attending the annual meetings of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank in Washington, D.C. over the last few days, my overwhelming takeaway is one of U.S. dominance. The U.S. society may have internal chasms, and some of its political institutions and processes may have been weakened in recent years. But as far as the rest of the world is concerned, U.S. monetary and financial market policy, U.S. demand, U.S. industrial policy, and U.S. sanctions loom above just about all other considerations. So, let's start with the United States of America. I will later delve into a few other points concerning the rest of the world that I picked up during the meetings. For the U.S., inflation remains a dominant issue. From election ads to talk shows, it is mostly about inflation. Recession may be looming, housing may be on the cusp of slowing, hiring freezes may be making the way for job cuts, but those are emerging risks, whereas inflation has taken hold of the society's current psyche. There is hardly any mention that core goods inflation is zero on a month-on-month basis. Instead, the concern is that services side is showing signs of acceleration. Latest price data show that elevated food prices are affecting sentiments, whereas rents remain high and energy prices ranging from heating oil to electricity to gasoline are all at uncomfortable levels, with emerging upsides going into this winter. Wages, pension indexation, cost of living adjustment allowances, these are all playing catch up with rising prices. This means that much feared wage price spiral is already here to some extent. These price developments are taking place at a time when the income and savings level of Americans are fairly robust. And neither the housing nor the job market are showing any meaningful cracks yet. And the monetary and fiscal tightening put in place so far have not really subtracted from economic activity substantially. The implications are clear. The Fed will keep hiking through November and December and perhaps even into the new year. The sharp rise in U.S. rates have caused the U.S. dollar to strengthen by nearly 20% this year. And there were some talks during the course of the IMF meetings that this is a wrecking ball for the global economy, causing corporate and sovereign distress worldwide, which in turn could hurt the bottom line of U.S. corporations that have large global operations. Ideas like the need for coordinated intervention by major central banks were floated, but it seems clear that the U.S. government has no desire to do anything in this regard. Strong dollar tends to be negatively correlated with commodity prices, and that is a very useful channel to import disinflation at a time like this. Besides, buying foreign currency by injecting dollar liquidity is not considered consistent with the Fed's battle against inflation. Bottom line, don't expect the Fed to help out on global currency matters anytime soon. The U.S. policymakers are providing an array of messages to their counterparts. Be prepared to deal with tighter dollar liquidity, more restrictions on doing business with China, more support for building in the U.S., and more industrial policy aimed at supporting U.S. companies. This is an inward-looking, 
competition-averse, resiliency-focused America, and there's virtually no difference between the Democrats and the Republicans on these matters. For firms and governments in Asia, navigating trade and commerce and foreign policy with such an assertive U.S. will be challenging, to say the least. Moving on from the U.S., one concern heard during the meetings, predictably, was financial stability risks in the midst of rising interest rates and an ascendant dollar. The fact that U.S. policymakers are not putting much weight on this matter for now does not make this issue go away. Indeed, recent turmoil in the U.K. gills market was an illustration of risks that may be lurking on public or private balance sheets. It's an important question. After the end of the era of low for long, which accidents await the global economy in the rates normalization phase? Is the stress faced by UK pension funds a canary in the proverbial coal mine for financial markets? One stress point during the 2008 crisis was when financial institutions saw their leverage positions on securities with low historical volatility experience simultaneous rise in volatility and evaporating liquidity. This caused a spiral of forced selling and deeper losses. The key question is if something like that is brewing presently. Interest rates have been exceptionally low for over a decade, during which period asset managers around the world have gone up the risk spectrum in their quest for yield. Many have also taken on substantial leverage to boost those yields. It should hardly be surprising if some of them are now facing growing capital losses as rates rise and liquidity tightens. Could a redux of 2008 be in the horizon in which one sees mark-to-market losses forcing margin calls, leading to forced selling and further decline in bond prices, and so on? Yes, I think so. Could such dynamic precipitate financial stability? My fear? We may not have to wait too long to find out. Moving on from financial stability, the war in Ukraine and the impending recession in Europe were widely discussed during the meetings. The U.S. is leading the military aid efforts, and it is also drawing in partners to support substantial economic aid. Now, the economic aid aspect has faced some administrative and program design rules, who should do it, how much, when, under which program, etc. Still, the resolve of Western nations on the war looks formidable. Of course, the energy supply shock emanating from the war is going to cause a recession in the Eurozone. The only question is how severe. Some estimates show that the shock facing Europe from high heating and power prices is bigger than what hit the U.S. during the 70s oil crisis. The fact that the ECB is hiking rates going into this war-driven recession is absolutely extraordinary. Fiscal and financial levers are moving in almost the opposite direction of monetary tightening in Europe, underscoring the difficulty posed by the current situation. What about emerging markets? Will they be a casualty of the shocks coming from the U.S. and Europe? Typically, the answer is yes. But during these meetings, it was clear to me from the body language of the major emerging market economies policymakers that they don't feel that helpless. The likes of India, Mexico, and Vietnam are benefiting from the China plus one strategy. Commodity producers like Brazil and Indonesia are enjoying favorable terms of trade for their exports. And many are in the early phase of post-pandemic economic reopening, enjoying boost to their tourism and event sector. Also, reserves have been built and debt burdens appear somewhat manageable. Of course, this is only one part of the picture. Beyond the large emerging market economies, there is considerable stress. Debt crises have popped up in South Asia, Latin America, and many parts of Africa. These countries have 
difficult restructuring ahead, and many would need adjustment programs with multilateral lenders. We saw many of those taking fruition during the course of the IMF meetings. One problem, however, is dealing with China's debt to these countries, which the Americans are insisting be subject to sizable haircuts. Now, what is China's strategy? Well, they have already begun providing debt relief to various borrowers. But the process has run into some problems. China's preferred strategy is to offer longer maturity loans with lower interest rates, which leaves the face value of the loan unchanged, but provides the borrower with a decline in the so-called net present value of the obligation. But typical international debt restructuring entails a write-down of the outstanding principal, something the Chinese authorities are disinclined to undertake. Their point is the net present value reduction is all that matters for the country. Essentially also, I admit that these are similar in effect and should be fine from a multilateral perspective. So let's hope that developing country debt distress won't be a casualty of these technical differences in approach. Speaking of China, little confidence was expressed during the meetings about its outlook. Between zero COVID, property market distress, tech regulation, constant pushback by the U.S., China's challenges are many. Unlike the aftermath of the global financial crisis, when China held up global demand with a massive stimulus program, nobody is holding their breath for a repeat this time. So, overall, a grim gathering of global economic decision makers with a sense of foreboding about the tough times ahead, higher rates, currency market volatility, developing country debt distress, great power rivalry, war, and the risk of financial instability are sources of concern. No wonder that financial markets are feeling little joy. That's it for episode 87. Copy Time was produced by Ken Delbridge from Splice Studios. Violet Lee and Daisy Sherman provided additional assistance. All 87 episodes of Copy Time are available on YouTube, as well as on major, all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our live streams, webinars, and research publications, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.